Genesis chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 1 in terms of our exposition of this passage and cover all the way through verse 17 where we read just a moment ago. We've said this along the way, but it's important to say it again, that the main character in Genesis, the hero in this story, in this book, is God. That's true. That's a true statement in all of Scripture. The whole Bible, including its first book, Genesis, it's, it's God's unveiling of Himself to us. He's showing, revealing Himself to us. It's not just a collection of moral stories. It's not a cluster of little character studies where we study this person and we want to be like him. It's not a list of rules. It, it does, we do learn morals, we do find rules, we, we can learn about and we can learn from kind of the supporting actors in the story. But chiefly, the Bible is about God. It's, it's from God and it points us to God and it tells us about God. It's, it's God at the center. It's, it's about everything that God has done to bring us back to Himself. And so, as we, again, are looking at this series through Genesis, it's, it's God bringing us from ruin to redemption. And so it's no surprise that in the flood story that we're, we're looking at last week and, and this week, that God is the leading actor. It's not, it's not uh, the smiling giraffe sticking his head out from the ark and all the little stories. It's not, it's not righteous Noah even. There are, there are supporting actors in the story here like Noah. But, but, but the emphasis is on what God is doing to preserve his people. To preserve his promise. And so this morning we want to behold our God in this flood story. We, we, we see him graciously acting for our good, for humanity's good, and for his own eternal glory. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So last week we looked at the, the first half of the flood story. And if you remember, we talked about the, 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 this, this flood narrative here in Genesis 6 through, uh, 6 through 9. It can be, it can be divided in, in these halves. And so last week we saw this broken, corrupt state of man. We saw this decision by God to judge the world. God's instructions to Noah in terms of building the ark and the floodwaters rising and destroying all life outside of the ark. So that was, that was the first half. And again, as we, the, the second half then is going to be a mirror image of that first half. And so it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the, the, that same thing in reverse. We're going to see this week the, the rain stopping and the waters receding and God's instructions now to leave the ark and this new life emerging outside of the ark. And life is just going to multiply. And so this new world emerges after this catastrophic uh, flood event, worldwide flood event. And so we said last week, and I'll say it again, where those two halves meet, those two mirror images meet, it's right at verse 1 of chapter 8, and, it's in, in, in the very center of it all, again, is God. No surprise. And so we're going to, so let's, let's see together what God is doing here in this flood story again, picking up where we left off last week. And we'll make six statements of what, what God is doing here. The first one is this, is God is remembering. God, God remembers His own. We see it right there in verse 1. This is the, the center of it all. But God remembered Noah. That's the hinge for the, again, the whole section here. Of this flood story. Everything has been moving toward this. In this flood story. Everything's now going to be uh, going on and building from this statement. And so verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Now when we hear the word remembered. We tend to think. Um, the way we tend to use it in English is. I, oh, I just remembered something. Or uh, I remember your name, or I, I remember where I left my car keys. And so we, we think, I've got to make a note now so when I get home I can get them. Uh, we, we're, we think like that. It's, it's about forgetfulness being remedied. That's what remembering is. But, but that's, not, that's not the idea of this word. God's remembrance of Noah is not like, oh no, Noah's out on the ark, I just remembered. And he's somewhere floating on this you know, watery earth, and I, I, I just remembered Noah. That's not it. This is not an act of God's memory in that sense. This is an act of God's grace. When it says that God remember Noah. This word, especially when it's used in reference to God in Scripture, it's, it, means to, it means to act upon a previous commitment. That's what remembering 
is. It's acting upon a previous commitment. So when God remembers, God acts. When God remembered Abraham, he saved Lot, Genesis 19.29. When God remembered Rachel, she conceived a child, Genesis 30.22. One commentator said, God's remembering always implies his movement toward the object. The essence of God's remembering lies in his acting towards someone because of a previous commitment. So, when God remembers Noah and the other lives on the ark, all of the beasts and all of these creatures, God is choosing to act upon His previous commitment to them. That's what's being communicated there. His previous commitment to bring them safely through the flood, to preserve the promises that He's made to them. And so, God always acts on His commitments. That's eternally true of God. He is... He always keeps His promise. He's always faithful to do what He says He'll do. He always remembers His people. He always acts. Do you believe that? I mean, do you believe that God God remembers His own? Do you believe that He will act upon what He has previously promised and committed Himself to? Uh, we, we, if we're honest, we struggle sometimes. We, 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 we know what He says, but, but, but we, don't, we don't always believe, yes, God, you, you do remember me. So when God says things like, He takes care of the sparrows, He will take care of you. He remembers. Or, he, or you will not be tempted beyond what you can handle, but He, he will always provide a way of escape. God will hear you and He will answer you when you pray. God God will forgive your sins if you confess them. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you, brothers and sisters. If you lack wisdom, ask God and He will give it to you. God is faithful and He, He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. These are just biblical promises that we find in Scripture. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will cause all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. His word will not return void. He will make all things new. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will come again for His own. The dead in Christ will be raised. I mean, these are, these are promises. These are previous commitments that God has made. And what we're saying is God is a God who remembers. He acts upon His previous commitments. Do you, do you struggle to believe that sometimes? When, maybe when the circumstances of your life, they seem dark and they seem scary and it, it, can, it can feel like God has forgotten. It can, it can seem like He's chosen not to act upon His promises to you. And so you think of Noah. Noah he, God tells him when the flood's going to begin, but there's no indication that Noah ever was told by God when it was going to end, how long it was going to last, or anything like that. There's no, it's not revealed to us. So after five months on that ark, water still rising, no sign of letting up, no sign of dry land, is Noah wondering, Lord, where's, where's your promise? Have you forgotten me? Have you forgotten your promise? But, but the text says, and it doesn't even say that Noah was told this, but the text says God remembered Noah. He's acting, he's moving toward, acting toward Someone based upon a previous commitment. Do you really believe he remembers you? That he will act on his previous commitments? Or do you think there's some kind of fine print that you're looking for that excludes you from his promises? You know God's promises and you can see them worked out in other people's lives, but because of what you're going through right now or because of what you've walked through in your past and because of some sin in your life, you say, no, that I, I know I'm excluded. It doesn't apply to me. You struggle to believe that. You, you, you believe them, but you don't believe they always apply to you. And so you get, it's like the, uh, you get the coupon in the newspaper for Home Depot or something like that, 50% off of a, of, a, of a single item or something like that. And then you start looking at that fine print. And it excludes tools and hardware and building supplies and lumber and anything in landscaping or gardening. Basically, you can buy beef jerky or uh, candy at the checkout line is all that's included in that. And... And so, is that how it feels, though, sometimes? 
It's got a, I know what you say, that sounds really good, all of your promises are, are true and they're going to come to pass, and all those promises we read just a moment ago, and there's many more that we could, we could add on to that, but it just doesn't seem like that applies. And I just say there's great encouragement to us here, brothers and sisters. God, God remembered Noah. And, and I know it's all condensed for us, but you think five months on that ark, you think he's going to be on there a year before he really hears God speak to him again. And God, God is remembering. And he remembers you. What encouragement this was to, again, the first readers of, of Genesis, Israel, coming out of Egypt in the wilderness, waiting for the promised land, and, and all of the time that's going to elapse, and all, I know some of that's because of their sin, the whole generation's going to die, but what encouragement to them. God remembers. He remembers his commitment, and he acts on it. That's an encouragement to us as well. So it's God's remembering we're going to see that gives us hope. And it also, it makes, it makes new life possible for Noah and for us. And so that's the second thing. second thing we see God doing here is God is, God is renewing. God, God renews the world. He renews the world. We see it in verse 1 through verse 19. This is a big chunk of the passage we're looking at today. And so I'm just, we're not going to be able to look at every word and phrase here. I'm going to summarize parts of this so in verses 1 to 3 after 40 days of rain the flood waters they continue to rise for 110 more days five months finally they crest and they begin to they begin to recede and god sends this wind that's it's I, that image of that wind it's I think it's harkening back to Genesis 1 where, again, the Spirit of God is moving upon the surface of the waters, this watery earth, and the Spirit winds, the same word. And so here's this water-covered earth, and this wind is blowing again. This creation is happening here. And so after about 200 days on the ark, 200 days, I just think about 200 days in the past here. And it finally runs aground. Verse 4, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, we don't know the exact location of these mountains. I know many people are looking and trying to find the ark, and someone may very well. But it's agreed that it's somewhere in that, in that mountain range there between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. So kind of modern-day eastern Turkey or southern Russia or Armenia, Georgia, and that in that region of the world, northwest Iran, so somewhere in that area is where the ark comes to rest on ground. But once it's aground, it sits there for a couple more months. And so the, the just, again, the Bible's silent. We don't, we don't have the details here of what life was like in the ark and what it was like to live there for this long. But you can just imagine cooped up there with seven people for this long, whatever the living quarters would have been like. Uh, all the animals and birds and crawling things and the sounds and the smells and uh, months of caring for those animals constantly, day after day after day, months of buildup of you know manure and stable muck and bilge water and all that stuff. I'm thinking they're ready to get off, and that is kind of the way it's indicated here. But but one thing that this shows it's no he's not he's not uh, he's not removed from the presence of the judgment. And, and this, we see this. He's preserved through it. And we saw this some last week. Salvation through judgment. The ark didn't come, <coughs> excuse me, the ark didn't remove him from the flood itself, but it, it preserved his life. It preserved him through the flood. And so too for us in, in Christ. And we'll talk about this moment at the table. We are, we, are, we are not removed from the presence of the difficulties of life in this fallen, cursed world and in fact we are we will say we will face many tribulations scripture says but we are safely preserved through them we are secure in christ and one day we will be removed from everything all of the difficulties all that's associated with judgment all that's associated with the curse because of christ who bore all of that on the cross but but now we're we're being preserved through it and so it was for noah there there were difficulties and he's waiting and it's not it's not just uh, easy and happy. He's being preserved. His life is preserved. God's promise is faithful. But it's not separating him from the floods. It's preserving him through it. So just, uh, just want to note that. Then in verse 6 and following here, we see the narrative dramatically slowing down. And so we, we, we've been racing up to this point. It may not seem like that to you, but 
You, you have in verses, and we saw some of these last week, where you have years, really decades of time that are covered in a single verse. And so Noah did. He built the ark. Basically, that's what one verse said. He did everything that God told him. And so 120 years covered in a verse. But here things begin to really slow down. And you, you noticed it even in, in chapter 9, what we read a moment ago, all of the repetition. And, and, and when you see repetition like that, that's kind of like Hebrew slow motion. It's slowing the scene down. It's causing us to take notice and to look very carefully at what's, what's being said here. And so in verses 6 to 12, we, we see we're, we're, we're waiting patiently with Noah for God's instructions to leave the ark. And so here the floodwaters are, are receding. The ark's, you know, run aground. And we're just waiting. He, Noah's looking for signs that the flood has ended. Looking for signs that there's life outside the ark. Looking for signs that it's time to, to disembark from this, this floating barge here. And so in verse 6, we see he opens this window of the ark, and, but he can't tell how far the waters have actually receded. And so he sends out, he starts sending out birds for reconnaissance here. This is before, you know, real-time satellite imagery or, you know, the remote-controlled drones. Uh, let's see uh, if Adam Wallace is here or not. But yeah, there he is. All right, he was in my house this last week, and, and he had this incredible... Uh, drone and, and the imagery of the high definition camera on that thing. It was it was phenomenal. He's flying he's like six mile range. I mean, what a gift that would have been to Noah. He didn't have that, but he had birds. Um, and so so again we'll see after forty more days. So the the ark runs aground, forty more days, we see the patience of Noah. He sends out this it sends out a raven first. And so the raven goes out, has plenty of carnage in that water to feed upon, plenty of stuff floating, driftwood and all that stuff. So it doesn't come back. Then he sent out a dove on, on three different expeditions with seven days between each expedition. And so the dove comes back the first time empty-handed or empty-beaked or whatever, and it had nothing. The dove returns again, and it has, verse 11, this freshly plucked olive leaf. Uh, one commentator says it's just that olive leaf's like this harbinger of a new world. It's this little olive leaf, signs of new life, new growth. Verse 11, Noah, because of that olive leaf, so Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then, then the dove goes out on the third mission and it doesn't return. It, it goes on. And again, we think, what, what patience? 120 years building the ark. Uh, now a full year of confinement in the ark. There's nothing recording again that God spoke to him during this time and uh, those months on the ark. No, no new word from God that's at least that's recorded for us. He's, he's waiting. He's waiting in hope. Waiting in hope that God will act upon his previous commitment. Uh, John Calvin said of this, he says, How great must have been the fortitude of this man who after the incredible weariness of a whole year, when the deluge has, has ceased and new life has shown forth, does not yet move a foot out of the ark without the command of God. He's waiting, waiting for God to say, go. Verse 13, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, look at the, the, the specificity with, with which this is recorded, these exact days and and times here, the, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark. So apparently there was some sort of skin, some kind of sheet that was pulled over the deck to make it more watertight. Now that's removed. And Noah looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. So again, over a year on the ark, finally the earth is dry again. Dry enough to unload this ark. Again, just thinking of, of Israel in the, coming out of Egypt and waiting and waiting. And what an encouragement this is. God is faithful. God is faithful. Wait and hope. <coughs> this is to be the posture of, of God's people in every age, including our own in this church age. This is what, this is what we're called to. We're called to, to wait in living hope, we saw this in First and Second Peter. God is not in a hurry. We trust Him. We're we're patient. We're waiting for the fulfillment of all that He's promised to us. And so this is this is where we find Noah. Finally, though, verse fifteen, the Lord speaks, 
seems to be breaking this, this year-long silence, at least in terms of what's recorded for us. Verse 15, Then, then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. And then listen to the language. Verse 17, Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So God finally gives Noah the all clear to come out of the ark. Now where have you heard that language of verse 17 before? This is, this is Genesis 1, that's right. This is, this is creation language. This is the language of the original creation being reintroduced now in this, in this sort of new creation after the flood. This, this now dried out earth. It's been wiped clean. It's as if God's cleansed the world, washed the world with these waters of judgment. And now this new world is emerging here. And so it's the same language of Genesis 1. It was like this new Adam, as it were, stepping out into this, this virgin world. And, and you have these colorful birds fluttering around and these large animals lumbering out of the ark and all these creatures busily scurrying around. And it's, that's the picture. And there he stands now in the sunlight of this new world. It's, it's quite a picture. God, God remembers. God, God remembered Noah. He acted on his previous commitment and that remembering led to renewal. God's acting on his previous commitments always leads to new life. Uh, that's, that's a truth we see throughout Scripture. God is a God of renewal. God is a God of new life. Sin brings corruption. Sin always brings decay. But God, God is a God who brings things, makes things new. He brings, he brings new life. In part now, and one day it will be fully, fully so. Third thing we see God doing here in this section, in this story, is God is receiving. God, God receives worship. He receives worship. Verse 20. So you just think again, summing, summing up all we've seen of God's, uh, what He's done for Noah. God has shown Noah extravagant grace. He's set him apart. He's chosen him. He's, he's instructed him to build the ark. He's protected Noah while he built the ark from all of those uh, violent, that violent generation that would have killed him. He's preserved Noah on the ark through the flood. He's, he's remembered Noah. He's now brought him through the flood and into this new world off of the ark. And what's Noah's first act as he emerges from the ark? It's worship. It's worship. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the, on the altar. And then verse 21, and the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. So, Noah's not perfect. Noah is a sinner who's been saved by grace. He's been protected by grace. He's been preserved by God's grace. He, and this grace has shown up in his life and that he trusts God and therefore he has righteousness and he's obedient to God and he's walking with God. And so by God's grace, what's his first thought as he's leaving the ark? It's God word. He's, he's worshiping God and, and God is receiving this worship of the sinner who's been delivered, who's been saved on that ark by His grace. He's receiving that worship. The smell of these offerings, it pleases God. That aroma, it's that, it's that language, that human language that we're kind of ascribing to God. It's, it's this sensory language just saying God accepts it. I just think we, we understand that, that language of smell. I can, we have the, the vent from our stove, our uh, top. It, uh, it, it vents right out onto the deck. And so my favorite thing is in the summer, if I'm outside doing something outside and, and Brooke's inside, particularly if there's like bacon and onion sautéing in the pan and she flips that, oh man, I, just, I start salivating just thinking about it. Now, that smell, that pleasing aroma. So I'm not... I'm not saying that, that, that I'm not trying to make a one-to-one comparison, but I just, that's the language. That's the, God is accept. He smells, and God is pleased. He's satisfied. And so the, the, the word used here for these offerings, it's, it's different. We saw, we saw the first, um, first offering was given by Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. This is a, this is a different word from their sacrifices. This is the word, though, 
that's the same word that's used later uh, in Moses' time of the burnt offerings and sacrifices associated with the temple. And this is the first time this word is used. It's connected with, with worship and the, and the temple. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that these burnt offerings, they carry a couple meanings here. I mean, one, very clearly, Noah's giving thanks to the Lord for his salvation uh, in the ark. And so there are, these are offerings of gratitude for God sparing him of the judgment that he deserved um, and, and from wrath. But also, I think this is an acknowledgement that while the flood wiped out humanity and we have this new world, it didn't wipe out sin ultimately. Sin is still a problem. And so there's, these, there's blood that's shed. There's, there, the, because of sin, there's offerings given. I think there's, that's expressed here. This is, a, this is a way of, these offerings are a way of calling upon the Lord that, that in some way carries this atoning effect on the worshiper. It's an acknowledgement, I still have sin. I still have sin. I'm not saying Noah understood this fully at all, but in the way that this is pointing to the coming sacrifice of Christ, but it, but it is in God's wisdom. It's pointing us to what's represented even as we eat the bread and drink the cup in a moment. It's the offering of Christ. And so, so there's this God's, God's receiving worship. He's receiving worship. And, and, he, and He's gracious to receive our worship, brothers and sisters. Not on the merits of our own. It's not, our worship, it's not something we present to God as a way of earning His favor. It's not, I hope that's not how you view what happens here on the Lord's Day. Like, I need to go to church today because I, I, know, I know my attitude this week. And I, it's like I've got to pay God back for the way that I've acted or things I've said or things I've thought or things I've done this week. Or I've got to get them on my good side because I've got a big, big thing coming up at work this week and I want to make sure I'm... Uh, you know, God's, um, God's on, my, on my team or something like that. We're not getting God on our good side. Uh, God on our side by, by singing praises, by coming together, by getting up here and, at, at 9.30 instead of 11 like every other church in the, you know, in the county, that kind of thing, and, 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 and taking the Lord's table and, and listening to sermons. That's not what we're doing here. Our worship is, one, it's an expression of thanks to God for our salvation. And then two, it's, it, and it's different in this way. It's, focused, it's still focused on sacrifice for sin, but it's focused on the completed sacrifice, the atonement that Christ has made for our sin. And God is pleased to receive that worship. He delights in it. Hebrews 10 makes this connection for us. Hebrews chapter, excuse me, chapter 13. And just listen to the words. I'm not going to comment on it. I'm just going to read it for the sake of time. Hebrews 13 verse 10 Listen to this. We have an altar. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Verse 15, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. God is still pleased with the worship of His people in this way, through Christ. Fifth thing we see God doing, the fifth action we see God doing that's driving this narrative in, in, this, in this passage is God is restoring. He restores order. And we see this in verses, the end of, in, end of chapter 8 here. Again in verse 21, when, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, so God's pleased with the sacrifice Noah, he accepts it, and it's his pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, or he considered within himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so... One thing I want you to see is there's this connection between the sacrifice 
in verse 20 and God's resolve here in verses 21 and 22. And so on the basis of this sacrifice, there, God resolves never to destroy the earth in the same way. In spite of man's continued sin. And so, so notice, it's not like God, God makes this promise based upon how good humanity is now. Alright, we've done away with those really bad men of violence and the demonized world. Now we've got a really good, uh, you know, respectable moral culture. It's, it's, it's great now. That's not it at all. We see the gracious nature of the, of the promise that God makes here and the fact that He makes it despite the continued presence of wrath-deserving sin. It's, it goes on. The flood wiped out most of humanity except for those eight lives that are on the ark. But it didn't bring any fundamental change within humanity. Man is still sinful. Man is that original sin that we inherited from Adam, the first man, is, is passed on to everyone after the flood. So verse 21, the intention of man's heart is still evil from his youth. It's, it's evil. That tells us the problem, the problem of sin is not external. It's not just outside of us. It's not out there. It's not just a few mistakes we make every now and then. The bad things we do here and there. The bad things we say or what we don't do. It's, it's, it's internal. It comes from our corrupted hearts that we all have inherited. And yet even so, God is, what is He doing? What is He promising here? God is, God is graciously restoring order to the earth. It's not going to be wiped out again by a flood. There's going to be a, a predictability to life in this world that's going to return after the flood. It's, and it's God's doing. We, and we get to enjoy the blessings of this even now. We, we, we can count on things in this world and the basic ecology of the, this world because of this promise. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. But I mean, you see in verse 22 that things like life cycle, seed time, harvest, food supplies, seasons, cold, heat, days, nights, they're going to go on and on and on until the end of history. So long as the text says the earth remains. And so this, this chaos of the flood and this, it, it gives way to this ordered, restored order. And it's all God's doing. And so the, way, the reason things exist the way they exist is because of God. Uh, again, just thinking of, of, of Israel in, and sur- coming out of that polytheistic world of, uh, of Egypt and surrounded by those nations with all of their gods and all of their deity stories and how, why things work the way they do. And here cutting through all of that is this clear revelation. The reason things work the way they do is because God has restored order after the chaos of the flood. And he's going to keep it until, until as, so long as the world exists. And again, we live under this grace. It's not, it's not that our world isn't that bad anymore. No, it com- sin compounds within, with, with, with every generation. But God's promise is intact. And everyone gets to enjoy the blessings of living in this God-ordered world. Sixth. I said six things that we see God doing. There's actually seven that we're going to see. So I'm not trying to, I didn't try to pull one over on you there, but just don't want you to uh, start closing your Bibles after, uh, you know, finish this point. Uh, six, God regards life. He regards life. We see that verse chapter nine now, verses one to seven. And so the judgment of the flood, it brought this wide scale death and destruction. And, and, and we saw last week, it's, it was salvation and it was life preserved, but it was preserved through judgment. There's life in that ark. Everything outside of the ark perishes. And, and we're not given all the gory details of, of what that was like, but, but we are told everything dies outside the ark. And yet here, as Noah and his family and the animals, they, they step off of this ark of salvation. There's this focus on life, new, li- new life. This, this new creation. And so we see life that's multiplied. Verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he says it again in verse 7, And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And so, you, again, you recognize that wording, don't you? 
This is Genesis all over again. Genesis 1, 22 to 25 and 28 through 30. This is the first blessing that God gave to Adam before the, before the fall. And here now it's being repeated, not just after the fall, but after this flood. That life is this gift from God and we're to extend it. Children are a blessing from the Lord. And he's saying this is part of the creation mandate. Be fruitful, multiply. That hasn't changed. Life is multiplied. Second, life is sustained. Uh, Life is sustained. Verse 2, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. And so this, the the, the animal's fear of, of man, it developed naturally after the fall. So I'm not saying that that prior to the flood, everything, they, like we were just, everybody was getting along swimmingly. I think it, that grew over time. But here, after the flood, it just becomes ingrained in them. And it's just a part of normal life now. And for good reason. Verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I ga- as I gave you green plants, I give you everything. And so... We saw in Genesis 3.21 that that animals were used for clothing. We saw in Genesis 4 they were used for sacrifice. And here, but but there's there's been no example prior to here of of animals being consumed, eaten prior to this Genesis 9.3. But now man is specifically authorized to kill animals for food, we could say. And God created barbecue. Um... And so we have, we have this green light to smoke brisket mm, and eat steak and have a hamburger at lunch, that kind of a thing. And so, so God is expanding the menu for man here and, and he's adding animals to the human diet. What? As a way of sustaining life. This is, this is the point. So life is multiplied, life is sustained and then we see life protected in verses 4 to 6. So this provision that man can now eat animals, it's immediately restricted in verse, in verse 4. He says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And so the idea seems to be that he's telling, he's telling Noah and, and that humans, they're not, they're, not to, they're not to devour animals the way that animals devour one another. Uh, that, that while they're still alive, you know. So it's almost like God saying, having to teach, teach them a little YouTube video, how to eat meat. And so, is it, you're not, is it not licensed to savagery? Uh, no, that's not his point. But it's, it's, there, there's still this respect for the sacredness of life. Life and the blood, those are, that connection. And so, but, so that's, that's what we see. And, and if animal life is to be treated that way, how much more human life? Made in God's image. And that's what he goes on to say in verses 5 and 6. There's no sin that shows greater contempt for life than murder. So he says in verse 5, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. So both animals and men will be held accountable for taking human life. And see, this will be even codified in, in the law that God gives to Moses. And he goes on, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So fellow man, the word is just brother. From his brother. I mean, you can, we, we know where we've just been with the story of Cain and Abel. And so there's this connection between the command, uh, uh, this command and the way that God avenged Abel's blood after Cain murdered him, murdered his own brother. But I think also, it, 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 this, is, this is there, it's by virtue of our shared, shared humanity. Shared humanity in the image of God. We all come from the same first parents. We're all related. We're all brothers and sisters. So in, in a sense, all murder, all homicide is fratricide. It's killing of a sibling because we're all connected through Adam. And this is the basis of it. And then he says it in poetic form. This, this little memorable uh, way of, of, of saying this, whoever sheds the blood of man, verse 6, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made, God made man in his own image. So you remember that picture of life before the flood, the, the generation in which Noah lived, it was, it was thoroughly corrupt and demonized and the text says the earth was full of violence. 
That, that, that murder was just kind of ho-hum. It was just an everyday occurrence. Men of violence and brutality, they were considered men of renown. That's how they were viewed in that culture. And, and, and because of remaining sin in man's heart, even after the flood, the world, it could descend to that same level of violence. And so God is instituting this principle, life for life. As a, as a, because he loves life. It's a humane thing. And so he grounds it in this doctrine of man. Man made in the image of God. As image bearers of God, humans have value above all other created beings. Created things, animals, or any other created creature. And so, so this murder, it's very serious to God. Murder, you think about what it is. It's an attempt to usurp God's sovereign authority over the life and death of one of his image bearers. That's what it is. It's just saying, I choose, I'm choosing to, to buck your authority and, and take a life that you have authority over. This life that's made in your image. It's not talking about personal revenge killings. It's, just, it's just about a societal responsibility. Now, obviously, it's not a sermon about the death penalty or anything like that. That's not my point. But we, we live in a fallen world and there are judicial abuses and there are this this life for life principle it's been employed in 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 awful ways and and with twisted motives for political means or even racial motives and so those abuses are an abomination and woe to any system that wrongly administers this woe to, woe to any society that allows that to happen uh, woe to judges who are culpable in this but god will not be mocked but I don't think we can argue against life for life on what we consider humane grounds. Because we, we, can, we can argue against its abuse, we can argue that it be carried out in a just manner, but it exists precisely because of God's very humane concerns. It's because God regards life, He loves life, He, he values life, He protects life. That's why this is given. And that's what, the, that's what this, he's, he's communicating this to this new world. As, the, as this new world emerges, God is making this exclamation point. I am a God who, is, who gives life and who protects life and who values life. Human life. Because this, this whole story now, is gonna, this ark is going to, uh, this, it's going to emerge of this, from ruin. And God is going to redeem this humanity. And he's going to bring new life. Last thing. Step, seventh statement. What God is doing here. God, God reaffirms His covenant. He reaffirms His covenant. We read this earlier in verses 8 through 17 of, 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 um, of chapter 9 here. And so uh, you see in verses 8 through 11 here that, that this global flood, it's going to be a one and done deal. There are, there are no, there's no sequels here. This is, this is God's covenant oath. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature, birds, livestock, every beast, as many as come out of the ark, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Let me just say a few things about this covenant oath that God makes here in Genesis 9. One, this covenant is unilateral. It is, God is the sole initiator of it. Two times he calls it here in verses 8 and 11. My covenant. God is the one that's writing this covenant. It's, it doesn't require any assent. It doesn't require any action. It doesn't require any ratification by Noah or mankind. It doesn't even require their acknowledgement. This is just God doing it. And so God's not consulting with Noah and his family and, and, and to see if they're, you know, uh, see if they're up for being part of this covenant and, and bargaining and negotiating, sitting around a conference table hammering the details out. That's not it at all. God is the only one. God Himself and God alone establishes this covenant with Noah. So it's unilateral. Second, this covenant is universal. It encompasses every human being, not just Noah, not just family, every human being, but not just every human being, every living creature on the planet. It's extremely broad. God's goodness extends to all creation. I mean, this means that there's never, there's never been a person on the planet 
uh, on this planet who's walked this earth and could say truthfully that they have not received of the goodness of God. No, you have, because this is true. You are benefiting from God's grace and this covenant. Every single person has benefited from His goodness here. Third, this covenant is it's unconditional. There was never going to be another total catastrophe by water. And it doesn't, have, it doesn't matter what we do or don't do. It's unconditional. It's not based upon how deserving we may or may not be. Or they were. It's not merit-based. It's mercy-based. And so no one did anything to deserve this gracious oath the Lord made. And then last, this covenant is permanent. It's everlasting. There's no expiration date, no return policy, no wiggle room for change, nothing like that. It doesn't mean, when we say that, we say it's, it's, it's everlasting. Sometimes that can, that can sound to us, ah, it's old and it's kind of stale and it's irrelevant. It's just kind of dusty. That's not it. That's not however, how it's ever with God's covenants. His, God, His covenants are as fresh today as they were when they were given thousands of years ago. They're, they're as fresh, they, these are fresh in the mind and heart of God. It should be for us too. And then God adds a sign of the covenant that he's, that, he, that he's making here to all flesh that will ever exist. And the sign of this covenant is this, is this rainbow. This bow in the clouds. And, and so this, you, just, you, just, you picture that bow like military or, or a hunting tool. That bow that stretches across the clouds here. And it's a sign of this covenant. God certifies His covenants with signs. With other covenants, we see this. God's covenant with Abraham. What's the sign? It's circumcision. His covenant with Moses or in Israel. It's, it's, it's the Sabbath. And the new covenant in Christ, it's the Lord's table. And so here, this, this rainbow is this sign of the covenant. One commentator says, Stretch between heaven and earth, it is a bond of peace between them both. And spanning the horizon, it points to the all-embracing universality of the divine mercy. Now, we, we, we know the story, and we know the rainbow, and we know it's associated with the ark, and this promise never to flood the earth again, but we, sometimes we think that, that this rainbow was given so that we would remember God's promise to us. And it's, that's true, that's part of it. But according to God, the way this is revealed to us here in, in, in Genesis 9, the rainbow is for God to remember His covenant. That's what it says. The language is not, no, when you see the rainbow, remember my covenant. The, the language is, when I see the cloud, when I see the rainbow, I will remember my covenant. What is that? Does God need reminding? Is He forgetful? No, not at all. This is for us. But it's telling us something that's true of God. He, he sets this rainbow in the sky after, after the storm. It's like this mini covenant renewal ceremony. And, and we get to, we get to, we're in on it. We, we, when we see the rainbow, we're witnessing God reenacting and confirming the covenant that He made with the earth, with all of us. And so God knows Noah's going to look at the rainbow and say, "That's a sign of God's promise." And, and it's, I remember what God said when when my rainbow appears in the sky. I want to, re, I want you to remember that I remember my oath. That's what it's communicating. This whole passage is designed to reassure Noah, to reassure everyone of God's mercy, and to reassure us of His mercy. What a, what, a wonderful, what a wonderful comfort those words are. What a wonderful comfort all the covenants are that God has made. Because what is a covenant doing? It, it's, it's, it's allowing us to know exactly where we stand with God. God's telling us. We we get to know. And so what comfort to Noah and his family after they've watched the whole world be destroyed by this flood. They they never have to wonder if God might do it again in his wrath. They never have to wonder. They know where they stand with God. We we benefit from this kind of common grace too. We don't have to wonder when the sky opens up yesterday and torrential rain coming down. Oh man, is, is, is it happening again? You know, he's like, like Ken Ham and the ark up there. The, his family's the only one that are going to be saved. And uh, we're all going to be wiped out. No! But the blessings and the promises of God's covenant with, with Noah, they anticipate this greater, this greater covenant that we are directly connected to. Also, this new covenant. 
It's, it's recorded for us in, Je- in Jeremiah chapter 31. And this law is going to be not just external, but it's going to be written on our hearts. And, and the Lord says, I will be their God. They shall be my people. And we will truly know the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the language of the new covenant. And what does Jesus say when he comes and he institutes this covenant? It's instituted by his death on the cross at Calvary. And the sign of the covenant is what we're going to remember here in just a moment. It's the Lord's table. Matthew 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so there's this wonderful comfort for us as we eat and we drink of the table, as we, as, we, as, as we see the sign of the covenant together on the Lord's day. We know exactly where we stand with God when we eat and drink. We don't have to fear a future out, outbreak of divine wrath against us. God just being fed up with us. We know all those who are in Christ by faith. This this sign reminds us that God's wrath has been propitiated, satisfied by Jesus' atonement on the cross. You know, covenant signs, they're given to reassure us of the promises that God makes in the covenant itself. And so so the the prime function of a covenant sign, it's to reassure us that the rainbow doesn't bring about the blessing. It, it, It just confirms the reality of that blessing that's already in place. And so it is that... That the, 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 the Lord's table, it's pointing us to what has already been accomplished by Christ. It's not that things are being accomplished in this moment. It's, it's not about what we're doing for the Lord at the table or when we eat and drink and we're presenting some offering to God. That's not it. It's about what God has done for us in His Son. And that's where we come and we eat and drink and we revel in the fact that we know where we stand before God because of Christ, clothed in His righteousness. And we'll do that in just a moment. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we come and celebrate and and revel in in that place that we have before you in Christ, that we would eat and drink with joy and thanksgiving in our hearts um, for the mercy that we know in Christ. Help us to do that now uh, joyfully before you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.